Hey, welcome everybody to Not So Famous Achievers. Weekly conversations with some of the world's most amazing but not so famous achievers on what they did and how they did it and what you can learn from their journey. With your hosts, Will Christ and Robert White. Hey guys. Well, welcome to our conversations with the not so famous achievers today and we've got a great conversation coming up with someone who has had a big hand in helping us move towards solar energy and now how to transmit that energy across the country so welcome troy thank you will it's good to be on the uh, show today so troy helming robert troy helming He's going to tell us about what he had before, which is a large array of uh, of solar plants and generate a lot of electricity. But, Troy, pick up the story there and tell us how you got to where you are. Sure. Yeah. So I've actually been in solar since 1980. You can believe that. So uh, four decades. Um, I'm uh, in my 50s, so obviously I was a kid when that happened, and it was my job in uh, junior high and high school. One of my main chores was to maintain our solar heating system on my dad's dream home. So it heated our, our water, our pool, our hot tub, and in the wintertime, we'd shut off the pool, and, and it would heat the air in the house with uh, the four furnaces had a, a heat exchanger in it where the, the hot solar fluids would, would flow through. So I've been around solar a long time. Started uh, the first wind company in Kansas called Trade Wind Energy in the 1990s. Uh, sold that in 2004. It was um, bought by Enel Green Power, a huge Italian utility, but uh, it became the largest wind developer in the United States by 2017. Um, so that's part of my legacy. And then I, I switched to solar, also wrote a book, uh, The Clean Power Revolution. Uh, but don't don't buy it. It'll put you right to sleep. But anyway, I do talk about uh, <laughs> how we need to um, add about 170 new transmission lines in this country to unlock a lot of cheap wind and solar power. Uh, not only lower our, our cost of energy, um, but clean up the air, clean up the water, reduce the mercury and lead and cadmium that uh, goes into our water and our food from all of the coal plant emissions. Um, so I've been around the industry a long time, public speaker, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and then I came up with a pretty cool idea, as we have talked about briefly, Will, in, in 2015. I don't know if you want me to share that now. or oh, Well, uh, let's set it up what this is, because what, what you told me was that the problem we have right now is not generating electricity, because with solar and, and wind, the price is coming down, we're going to have lots of, of electricity generated organically, right? That's right. Yeah, and, and the real right. problem is this transmission. It is. The costs are coming down. I mean, if you look at um, the extraction industry, oil, gas, and coal, you know, those those prices generally are kind of going up. You know, there's volatility, of course. So, you know, gas prices change every day, right? <clears throat> Technology can help lower costs for a time, but generally that trend is going up. Whereas with the technology, like, you know, whether it's cell phones or, you know, flat screen TVs or wind or solar, that cost curve goes down. The more adoption you have of technology, the, the price drops. And those two lines have now crossed. And so solar is cheaper than coal and nuclear everywhere in the United States. It's cheaper than uh, than the nuclear, it's cheaper than coal everywhere. And, and wind and solar are cheaper than natural gas in about 46 states. So it's not about the economics or even finding better technology. 
we we have the technology and the price is right. So yes, you're right. Well, it's transmission. <clears throat> There's so much wind and solar, uh, wind in the Midwest, primarily along kind of the Great Plains and the wind belt uh, and, and solar in the South and the West, particularly in the Southwest. But there just are not enough transmission lines to get that cheap energy to our cities. Isn't that what happened in Texas in the, the deep freeze? Exactly right. Yeah, their system was uh, designed for a lot of different scenarios, but they never really anticipated a deep freeze that would be uh, cold enough with weird climate change and climate weirding, whatever you want to call it, going on. You know, the uh, jet stream from the Arctic went all the way down to Texas and it froze all of the natural gas in the pipelines. The gas could not move in the in the pipelines and the pumps. A lot of the pumps are not electric powered, they're gas pumps. So they're burning gas to pump gas. And those pumps failed in the cold weather, uh, which uh, caused a problem in the, in the wintertime earlier this year. And, and similarly in the summer, there's some times where the droughts are so bad that they can't pull water from cooling water from the rivers for cooling power plants. So some of the power plants are going offline and yeah, they're having a lot of issues. And it's mainly because Texas has its own grid. There's the Eastern grid, the Western grid and Texas. <laughs> You know, because they might want to succeed from the country at any at any moment, right? So they have right. to. Have they could break into five states immediately, just like that, exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the, the great state of Texas has its own grid, and and historically it's been fine. But with some of these weather anomalies, it's becoming apparent that they have, have vulnerabilities there. So better transmission would solve that problem. If we could have exported solar power from the west coast to texas during those moments they would have been fine similarly wind from the midwest and there's just very little exchange of energy between the eastern grid the western grid and the texas grid um and and that needs to be solved yeah so does that make sense robert one of the things i've learned is i started out in life thinking i was going to figure everything out <laughs> which is hilarious when you get to this age. But uh, I really did deep in my heart. I thought I, I, one day I'm going to figure everything out. And uh, then along came uh, uh, a guy named Peter Wenge, who taught me about general systems theory, that everything is too complicated to understand all these big systems. And certainly our energy supply usage network is incredibly complex so for me listening to troy is is uh, educational uh -huh. <laughs> but uh troy what i always look for is the leverage point in the complex systems you know what is the decision the action that with one unit of energy speaking of energy you get 10 units of results so i'm curious what's the leverage point here uh, that would make a new idea work uh, so that we could really use this, all of these new technologies. So the leverage point, that's a great way of putting it, Robert. The leverage point is to find a, a way to get transmission lines built in less than 15 years, because that's typically how long it takes. Ooh. And the reason for that is companies that are doing it, which are typically utilities or large uh, independent power producers or transmission companies, and there are a lot of privately owned transmission lines already in the United States. Not all of them are owned by utilities. There are privately owned transmission, but it, it takes so long because they have to get all the permits and they have to find ways to convince communities along the way to accept, frankly, an ugly big old transmission line going through their community. 
Uh, and that's very difficult. Um, there was a company in Houston called Cleanline that uh, ultimately failed. They had raised hundreds of millions of dollars and were developing four big transmission line projects to unlock primarily wind power, cheap wind power, and move it to uh, the East Coast. Uh, and they failed because there were certain counties in Arkansas and Missouri and certain cities that vehemently opposed these new transmission lines because there was very little benefit to that community, right? It was just passing through um, and, and ultimately killed those projects and, and killed the company. It was very sad. So um, I came up with an idea in, in 2015, uh, and I, I'll just share the story because it's kind of fun. Uh, I had at the time 80 employees. We were developing lots of solar farms all over California, North Carolina, Minnesota, and a few other states. And um, one of our projects was just downsized by 75% because the power lines, the grid just couldn't handle it. They were too old and creaky. And so we had to reduce the size by, by 75%. You know, and the utility had agreed to pay, you know, buy this much. But um, anyway, that was really frustrating. So we had a happy hour. We were kind of commiserating. And one of our solar employees, Dominic, he's a former Navy SEAL. And he was bragging to his girlfriend uh, at this happy hour about how he and his SEAL team used to approach enemy ships by cutting a hole through the side of the ship underwater. And then they would go in and you know take over the ship, right? He was like, yeah, you know, we were using this plasma cutting torch. It was, you know, 20,000 20, degrees. That thing could take your arm off. And we're all like, oh, dude, you know, you're such a badass. Or, or you're tough. Sorry if I can't say that on on the air here. But um, anyway, we, we were all impressed. That night, I woke up in the middle of the night. I was like, huh, plasma, 20,000 degrees. I wonder if that's hot enough to melt rock. Because if we could go underground with these power lines, which has always been 10, 20 times more expensive than overhead. But if we could somehow solve this and go underground where people don't have to see it and worry about it, we could follow public rights of way, roadways, rail, rail lines, and things like that. That might solve it. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I was up all night researching. I couldn't find anybody doing this. I didn't even know if it was possible. Long story short, hired an engineering firm um, that specializes in plasma. They're publicly traded. They did a feasibility study. They said, yes, it'll work. Number two, you can bore it one kilometer per day. Number three, nobody else is doing this that we're aware of. And number four, here's what your operating costs are, replacing your electrodes every six months or so. And I looked at that math, talked to some other engineering firms that have expertise in underground utility lines. And long story short, we're up to 200 times faster and 90 to 98% cheaper than any conventional boring and, and drilling technology. And you don't have to worry about hurricanes. Bingo. Or ice storms. Or even earthquakes. You know, earthquakes. So I ask get this question a lot. And we've raised millions of dollars in the in two different versions of the company here and over the years. And, and some of the engineers are like, um, okay, but what about our VCs? Or, or, or what, what about earthquakes? So I always say, all right, if you're on the ocean and a big tidal wave is coming, would you want to be on a cruise ship? trying to face into the huge tidal wave or would you rather be in a submarine? Submarine, of course, right? So during earthquakes in Japan or Mexico City or whatever, very little damage ever happens to the subway systems. The damage happens as the, as the energy waves propagate up to the surface. Very good. Well, I know we could get into a lot of conversation about that technology and about the issue and all of that stuff. Uh, what with Will and I, what we generally do is to try to look at the journey of an entrepreneur of a, or somebody just running a company, running a major part of a company, and uh, you know, kind of what's worked and what's hasn't worked, and 
as a general flow, it's, it's also to take a look at what hasn't worked in your journey as as a CEO, as a as an entrepreneur, and uh, what you learned from it, how you got through it. Uh, you know the the story. I mean, you've had a fascinating life and starting at a very young age. Uh, uh, so what about your journey personally and, and professionally? Yeah, so my father and most of my aunts and uncles are entrepreneurs. And so I guess it's kind of in our blood a little bit. And I, I saw that example growing up and learned, at, as you said, at an early age, that you, you kind of have to have the stomach for it. You know, it, it, it's tough. You don't have that steady income. There's lots of peaks and valleys. So despite being mentally prepared for it, I think I was frankly a little too arrogant in my 20s. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I was like, ah, it'll be fine. I'll be able to do this. Yeah. And then life happens and you bloody your nose a few times. So, um, but yeah, I went to work out of business school for AT&T and did really well there. Um, and learned, I think it's very important to, if you do want to be an entrepreneur, to work for uh, another company, uh, even a big company for a time. Learn what you're good at, what you're not good at is even more important. Um, learn what your passions are, what you like, and, and your style and so forth. And, um, and so I did that. And then I started my own uh, company in, in 1992, uh, telecommunications, because, um, you know, that was the industry I started in with AT&T. And and had to eat a lot of ramen noodles and hot dogs and PB and J. Um, it was really hard. It was way harder than I thought it would be. Um, you know, I made a few sales and and wasn't smart enough to set money aside or enough money aside for those times when there was a dry spell. You know, where where the customer revenue was was either zero or, or close to it. So that would be probably one of the more challenging times, but eventually got that company built up. Uh, I think we had 33 or 34 employees at our peak and, and we were the, you know, top distributor of Lucent Technologies hardware in, in the Kansas City area. And we had a Nextel wireless dealership and learned a lot. And then, um, then I read an article that said Kansas, Texas and North Dakota had enough wind energy theoretically to power the whole country. And I was like, hmm, okay, I grew up in a solar-powered house. I know it can work. It saved us a lot of money on our natural gas bill. Um, so, you know, solar wasn't cost-effective yet um, for the masses, but maybe wind is the thing to do. So I sold my telecom company and put that money into starting uh, the, first, the first wind farm company in Kansas. Made lots of mistakes. Again, more ramen noodles and PB&J. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, Eventually, um, you know, eventually did well, a lot of hard work, um, a little bit of luck. Um, I find the harder I work, the luckier I get. Um, and uh, ultimately raised several million dollars of angel investment capital. And then, you know, institutional capital came in after that. Wow. That's, that's a lot in just a few words. So thank you. Uh, you know, I, my first major business was built in Japan. And, uh, you know, I slept on a partner's sofa for, eight months sent my family back to the US. So I identify with that. Mm. And guess what my food of choice was? Ramen noodles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, admittedly, the, the, the real thing, and there was a lot of real thing around me in Tokyo, is a lot better than what comes in the little plastic uh, tub. But it's still ramen, and after a few days of it, it gets pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed it does. Well, so talk a little bit, Troy, talk a little bit about what you see uh, moving forward with your boring device. Talk a little bit about what you see. How is that? How's that going to help us? Yeah, for sure. So um, the name of that company is called Earth Grid because uh, we're building a grid, a new transmission grid. And our, our audacious, ambitious goal is to build a super grid that's all underground in the U.S. that would include power lines and fiber lines, serve a lot of uh, rural, underserved and tribal communities along the way with broadband. Uh, and uh, do what we talked about earlier, which is provide the transmission capacity, the superhighway for clean electrons, if you will, that connects the Eastern Grid, the Western Grid, Texas, and really unlocks all of that really cheap wind and solar power that, uh, that then can be delivered to our cities. So um, the company about five, was formed about five years ago, and we built, um, bootstrapped it, built a, kind of a prototype machine, tested it, and granite and really hard rock like basalt, um, limestone, sandstone, soil, clay, you name it. And then um, had another company that, uh, that, we, that we formed that was kind of an affiliate, raised some more money, built machine number two, but uh, back to the original company. And, and, and that company has been focused most recently for the last year or so on getting the utility filings done. So we're now approved as a utility in California, Nevada, and Idaho. Uh, we have utility filings in a handful of other states in the West, and we're going to actually take that all the way to the East Coast. And what that means is, as a utility, we get preferred, some might say guaranteed rights of way along public roadways for our underground tunnels. And so the idea is we're going to go deep beneath all of the spaghetti of other utilities that might already be there near the surface. We're going to go 30 meters deep, which is around 100 feet. That'll be in harder rock because we can go fast. Like I said, uh, a, a kilometer per day per machine. So we can bore really quickly and we don't have to change out drill bits five, 10, 15 times a day like conventional technologies. We just are vaporizing the rock and um, breaking it into little kind of either uh, cornflake sized bits or vapor. And when the, that vaporized rock cools, it rains or precipitates into kind of a silt or sand, and we can just blow all that out with vacuums and, and air jets. So it's a really cool process. Seeing it in action is quite amazing at our industrial testing facility in Richmond, California. Um, we're going to be uh, unstealthing the company in, uh, in a big way next year, but some of this is already public. The fact that we're filed as a utility, the patents uh, are being uh, new, three new patents are going to be uh, um, uh, published uh, next month. And so some of this is, is getting out. Um, but this technology will enable what we're calling infrastructure 2.0. Wow. So, so when you think about that, do you think that there will be tunnels connecting all cities? Or will this be like the trunk and it out, comes out of that and gets above ground? Or I mean, we, I'm thinking of Laguna Beach here. We've argued about putting our utilities above, uh, underground. Uh, this sounds like a, a, a more significant project that you're talking about. We actually think we're going to be um, so busy doing both. And there's room for probably 100 companies like ours in this space, you know, to, to improve our infrastructure. And I should point out um, for, for your listeners, 
that don't know this, the American Society of Civil Engineers, every couple of years, they rate infrastructure in the United States. Uh, do either of you want to take a guess at what the average grade has been? You know, uh, the is this a one to 10, one to five? Um, like eight, like in, in, in school, they used to use A, you know, you know, oh. A, B, C, D or, or F. <laughs> I think we're at least a D. That's right. Yeah, the average grade has been uh, D minus, D plus. C minus has been the best grade we've gotten over the last several decades. We've done a pretty poor job of investing in our infrastructure in this country. And so um, our plan is to have regional and neighborhood and transmission type tunnels. And we have a signed letter of intent with an e-commerce uh, company, a startup company that's working with the large, huge e-commerce companies that's going to use tubes to move parcels directly to people's homes through either pneumatically or with robots. So imagine having in your kitchen or your garage a little, a little you know, mailbox kind of thing where parcels just pop right in there. And maybe there's another one right next to it that you open it up and it's a vacuum and you, you know, you pop your, your bags of trash or recycling or compost or electronic waste in there. And it goes off to some, you know, central facility where they're using robots to sort it all. This is the future that we want to create. And this technology that allows the really fast and really cheap undergrounding. Uh, can do it. So yeah, we want to underground those ugly neighborhood power lines in Laguna Beach and communities all over the, the world, really. Uh, Troy, so, are, are you familiar with the work of Buckminster Fuller? Absolutely. You know, Bucky was, uh, I only got to meet him once, but he's one of my heroes. And I, I one of the things I'm most proud of is I got to write a chapter in the in the uh, in a book about his life and his impact on me and others. But one of his sayings, and I'm, I'm not going to get it word for word, but it's that it, it's uh, trying to improve the existing is difficult. Creating something new is is what is it's the breakthrough. And it sounds like what you guys are doing is it's really looking at the issue in such a totally different way. I think that applies to many people in many industries that uh, that, you know, the 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 Buddhists say that uh, fish don't describe water very well, whatever, whatever right. we're swimming in. Uh, it's pretty hard to get out of that and, and to see things in a new way. So I really want to acknowledge you and your team. I mean, you're obviously seeing things in a really different way. Yeah, it, it's been uh, it's been a fun journey. But over the last five years, as I thought about the possibilities that this technology can enable, you know, the uh, I guess the opposite of the sky is the limit. <laughs> uh, the ground is the limit because, you know, think about it. Uh, driving around, it, it's it's 2D. You can go X and Y, you know, you can turn left or right, but you can't drive up into the sky or go down under the ground. And Elon Musk has helped to bring underground tunnels, you know, to the forefront of, of modern day pop culture a little bit, which is great. So I'm grateful to him for that. But uh underground is 3d you know you can have tunnels that you know stack on top of tunnels of all different sizes um we're also talking to some of the hyperloop companies and departments of transportation about high-speed rail going underground or hyperloop you know i mean ultimately we could have a tunnel from new york city through um, iceland and greenland to europe for a high-speed maglev train or a hyperloop either one um, that could be a fast and cheap way to travel between continents. Wow. Amazing. 
So I think it's time to take a deep breath and take a break here. Let's hear from uh, let's hear from the people who sponsor us, and then we're going to come back and uh, get some more. Troy, is that fair? That sounds great. Well, we're going to give you one quick thought here that uh, plays into what we've been talking about here today. Our two hosts have lived extraordinary lives and been extraordinary entrepreneurs, and Robert White, certainly one of them. He mentors extraordinary entrepreneurs and executives just like you, people who want better results from their leadership performance. He shows them how to turn those results into increased personal joy and satisfaction as well. Robert founded and led two large training industry success stories. He's been there and done that, and his experience will help you find and achieve that extraordinary success you seek in your life. So why wait? Reach out and see what Robert can do for you today. Just email him at robert at extraordinarypeople.com. Robert at extraordinarypeople.com. And start living the extraordinary life you've earned. Does your company have a clear vision? Do you have the right people in the right seats? Are you consistently getting the results you want and enjoying the journey? If not, consider EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. EOS is a set of simple concepts and practical tools used by more than 100,000 companies around the world to clarify, simplify, and achieve their vision. Schedule your free 90-minute meeting with an EOS implementer at eosworldwide.com today. That's eosworldwide.com. And now back to our show. Oh, Troy. Talks about what you see as the, you know, the future of your company. What's what the next five years? Can you can you tell us a little bit about what it's going to look like three years from now? Yeah, well, uh, a lot of people ask kind of when's your first big tunnel going to be done? And so I'll just start with that. Um, we're in the process of uh, raising some additional equity capital right now. And we believe that uh, we'll get that wrapped up in the next few months. Um, a lot of interest out there, a tremendous amount of interest. And, and then um, we'll order all of the equipment from machine number three that we're going to build that will actually be a field version. Uh, and we hope to start building our first tunnels for our signed customer contracts that we already have in hand um, by mid-2022 to late 2022. And once we have the, the first you know, substantial tunnel built, uh, we'll really be able to unstealth and, and you know, the perceived risk or you know unproven tech risk will uh, uh, diminish quite a lot and we'll probably have our phone ringing off the hook to, to do a lot. And so then the challenge will be scaling up and building enough machines to keep up with demand. Uh, already our demand exceeds supply because our supply is zero and we have lots of, <laughs> lots of stuff. Um, so three years from now, fast forwarding, we have already mapped out um, pathways and customer routes that would connect Northern and Southern California with uh, utility tunnels. Um, and we'll start with utility and then move to transportation um, in three years is when we'll start our transportation tunnels. But over the next uh, three years, we plan to develop and build a very large loop from Northern California to Southern California and then going east into the Texas market from the L.A. basin to solve some of the Texas grid challenges. Going back north through Texas, through the panhandles of Texas and Oklahoma, up to Sydney, Nebraska and along the way pick up a tremendous amount of new wind resource generation and then head back west from Sydney, Nebraska, which, by the way, is where one of the grid DC interties is located that connects the eastern grid and the western grid. 
But again, it's a very small amount of energy that can transfer back and forth to solve problems in either side. It's, you know, a few hundred megawatts at most. And we want to increase that by at least uh, one order of magnitude, possibly, um, you know, by 20 or 30 X. Uh, anyway, but head from Nebraska back west to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, you know, through Reno as well. And so that will be a big loop. And we expect to have that loop done uh, within three years. And that will connect the eastern grid, the western grid, the Texas grid, solve, you know, a lot of challenges there and probably be able to add something like about five gigawatts, which is 5,000 megawatts of new clean energy capacity to those grids. And to put that in perspective, a typical very large nuclear or coal plant is about one gigawatt in capacity. And we're talking about adding, you know, at least at least five of those just in this first phase and then ultimately being able to add tens of gigawatts to that same loop. Plus the uh, flexibility. Precisely. Precisely. And, and there will be some energy storage along the way. And what's nice is if you have a big you know, powerful transmission line over a, a large, diverse geographic area like that, the wind is always blowing somewhere, right? So it kind of balances out the intermittency and you can do time zone shifting. So for example, when the sun is still shining in California, but solar production has fallen off a cliff in the Midwest in say Dallas and Chicago or wherever, you know, so we can export that that sunshine to the east and you know and cross two time zones there and vice versa when solar falls off a cliff in California and we hit our our peak ramping when everybody's coming home you know from work and plugging in their phones and their laptops turning on the ovens and you know and lights and everything we can import wind power from the midwest which we really can't do today at least not very much of it so right. it solves solves a variety of problems when we think about it, this is other form, a uh, subset of the globalization, isn't it? Is that it we is. are becoming much more connected? It, exactly. It, absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, bringing the world closer, making it smaller with, you know, not just the power lines, because the sun's shining everywhere if you connect the whole world, right? So a global supergrid is the ultimate goal. And that's been talked about. There's a lot of organizations that have proposed that, and, and the, the value proposition is enormous. Uh, so it's been an idea for decades. You know, we didn't come up with that. But we have the technology that can finally enable that, connecting continents to move power around and uh, again, wean the, the world off of dirty fossil fuels that cost a lot more and have that volatility, which is hard on economies and, of course, causes all kinds of health and environmental damage. Uh, but it's not just that. It's also the communications, making our you know, broadband available to communities all over the world and ultimately transportation. We have a design for an eight meter diameter tunnel. Um, so that's roughly 25, 26 feet in diameter. That's enough for a two-lane highway or two tracks of a high-speed rail or whatever. And so maybe having twin tunnels like that, crisscrossing continents, so you could go from California to New York and stop along the way in Chicago or any city that you want to in the Midwest. Uh, and we're talking about being able to do that cheaply and safely, you know, for like 20 bucks, 30 bucks, something like that, to go from coast to coast. Uh, and, and then... Why stop there? Pop over to London if you want to by going through the basalt, which is the predominant rock under the ocean, um, all the way to uh, to Europe. I remember the golden spike in Utah when the east and the west came together with the trains. I mean, it was primarily the Chinese uh, immigrants who were 
who were the laborers to put it together. But nevertheless, we see those folks, the industrialists, standing there pounding in that golden spike when they connected it. And and that's something about what you're talking about now with that kind of, of enormous change when you connect these grids, right? Right. It really is. It, it, it's it's um, it's almost hard for people outside of the energy industry who's, who aren't Sparkies uh, to appreciate how significant this would be for uh, for our grid. You know, not just the reliability, because our grid is actually quite a bit less reliable than the European grid. A lot of that is because they do a lot more undergrounding than we do. So not just reliability, but also cost. I mean, imagine. For the first time in our lives, energy prices steadily going down rather than yeah. up. Could I encourage you to change one word in what you just said? Sure. You you said this would be, and I want to encourage you to say it will be. It will be. <laughs> right. Yeah. You are right. Thank you. Thank you. See, even at 53, I'm still learning. That, well, I mean, uh, I mean that that whole thing. We we spend so much of our time in the the speculative rather than in the predictive. And, and I, I just think that the kind of things you're doing, they're very predictable. They I mean, you know, you, you get, get uh, you know, three or 400,000 additional dollars in, in angel investment, and then you're ready and you're, you're ready to go then, right? Exactly. Yeah, we're raising a little bit more angel capital. We've raised about 1.5 million so far. <clears throat> yeah, raise a little more angel, and then we have some VCs that want to lead a big round. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, then it's off to the races. Uh, you're right, right. Nothing's going to stop us. So we will do this. Uh, we now yeah. have so much interest that it's it's only a matter of executing the business plan now. Yeah, and, and I think that's what's so exciting is is as you know we could talk about the stories about how you got here and those are important but at this point we're talking about what is going to happen right and and we can begin to think about the effect that's going to have you said on just basic energy rates electrical rates the displacement that that's going to have uh, of the the gas industry, the the coal industry, the uh, electrical generating plants that depend upon those solar, I mean those uh, those uh, uh, fossil fuels, uh, the consequences of that are enormous in terms of health, uh, well-being, all of those. But that is going to happen. You're right. It is. It's it's exciting. We're we're living in exciting times with uh, technology changing our lives in so many ways. So yeah, this is really not all that much different from from some of the other technology that uh, that's being rolled out. And this is not something that uh, a few developers are going to be sitting in a, a dark room putting together. This is a major industrial project, right? It is. It's obviously very capital intensive. Uh, it's a lot different than building software platforms. Uh, a lot of capex, a lot of hardware, a lot of steel going into our our robot and and, and enabling us to do this. So, uh, but hey, look, this is what I've been doing my whole career for the most part is is uh, infrastructure, starting in telecommunications and then moving to energy. I've built. Uh, um, you know, companies that have built something like uh, 15 gigawatts of wind and solar farms, which represents over $20 billion of 
direct investment. And if you look at the indirect and induced um, economic impact of that, that's probably close to 60 or $70 billion of economic impact. And it's all industrial stuff. So yeah, some people call me a modern day industrialist. Yes. And, and what, what do you anticipate in terms of, uh, you know, five years from now, how many jobs will have been created because of this? Oh, goodness. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the number of jobs in solar or clean energy compared to other industries, like for instance, there's something like, uh, I think it's 1.8 million jobs in clean energy. Just solar alone is something like 300,000 jobs compared to maybe 55,000 jobs in the coal industry. A lot of people don't realize how many jobs have already been created in clean energy. Well, if we're going to add another five gigawatts because of our, our loop, you know, just in that kind of phase one, uh, we're talking about something like um, for wind, solar, and transmission, at least another fifty to 60,000 jobs. So I'd have to do the math. You know, we do have economic analyses of each individual project. Um, but then as you start to increase the capacity of these lines, because once the tunnel is already built, it's pretty easy to add more more conductors, more wires into the tunnel, right, right? Uh, to increase the capacity. So um, so ultimately, I could see a million plus jobs being created just from this one loop to allow all of these new wind farms and solar farms to get built. And, and of course, they have to be maintained and operated, too. So here's a question. Here's a question to following up on that. How do we take the people in the Rust Belt, the ones that, that Joan C. Williams talks about as the white working class? Yes. How do we move? I don't know that we can move them physically, but how do we get them involved in this so that they can move beyond the anger, the frustration, the despair that right. occurred when... One of my friends said when it, major industries broke the, the employment contract, uh, you know, not taking care of workers, not thinking about the effect that moving jobs off, you know, outsourcing jobs or closing down factories, not thinking about what that was going to uh, do in terms of impact. How do we get them involved in this? I absolutely love that question. So in our path that I alluded to earlier, where we're going to take our loop from Sydney, Nebraska, and take it all the way to the East Coast, we uh, intentionally chose the Rust Belt. So we're going to go from Nebraska through Iowa into Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and then uh, New York and, 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 uh, and Boston. So um, going through those regions is going to do a few things. Number one, we're going to need to hire a bunch of people to just, you know, bore our tunnel. And incidentally, every 30 or 40 miles, at, at least, maybe even every five or 10 miles, we're going to pop up out of ground and put up a cell tower for the new 5G, right? And, and probably electric vehicle charging stations and other infrastructure around that as we're following these highways and, and, and freeways in, in rural rural areas as well as urban areas. That's going to create a tremendous amount of jobs. There are already wonderful organizations out there, nonprofits and other organizations and NGOs that train people uh, who have been in older industries and help them transition into wind and solar. You know what the fastest growing job in America has been for the last four years in a row? Wind turbine technician. Yeah. 
And the second fastest growing job is a solar installer or a solar technician. So there is a tremendous need because wind and solar are growing by leaps and bounds. I mean, you know, the, the most capacity that's been added to our grid in terms of new power plants, the last six years in a row, wind and solar have been more than half. And in fact, in some years, it's, it's like two thirds to 80% of the new power plants that are added are renewable energy. And that's why it's creating so many new jobs. And we're talking tens of billions of dollars every year already. And our technology is simply going to accelerate that even more. And, and so there's a huge opportunity for a transition for people that have skills in whether it's coal mining or oil and gas drilling or manufacturing that are going to need to make more solar panels and more inverters and more of all of the electrical components, um, wind turbine blades, you name it. Uh, manufacturing in the U.S. of wind and solar components is large, but it's going to get a lot larger. And we need those people with those skills to make that transition. And Troy, uh, you know, that I, I did a book years ago uh, called One World, One People, and a quote that I unearthed that did not make it into the book uh, comes from the Arabic, which is uh, to keep your eye on the stars, but tie your camel to a tree. <laughs> I love it. So uh, certainly one of the more entrenched political forces that kind of goes unnoticed, I think, in the United States are all of these utility boards and utility commissions, state by state or even even regionally. Is there going to be a resistance to those folks that the established order and established uh, political donations and all that complexity goes with it? Uh, it's a pretty, it seems to me to be a pretty entrenched uh, barrier. Uh, how do you, how does the new guy deal with that as an executive, as a, as a promoter of this incredible idea? Yeah, look, I, I've been dealing with that my whole career. I mean, when I started the wind company in Kansas, a very conservative, very red state that relied uh, and still relies heavily on, on fossil fuels, although last year they exceeded 30% of the state's electric demand was met by wind power. Uh, so that was a big milestone for, for Kansas. But that's just one state, one example. But I got death threats multiple times. In 2000, 2001, I think even in 1999, myself and Jim and, and, and Matt um, on my team, because we were developing, you know, new wind farms and it was viewed as a threat. Um, you know, some of the, uh, the people and companies that, that um, have made a lot of money for many, many decades, as you just described in that whole political system, um, I actually started a second book called Caveman Country. You know how our, <laughs> <laughs> our, our country is uh, controlled by this caveman mentality of digging things up and burning it. Um, but the attitude is a lot different now. I mean, there's so many billions of dollars, tens of billions, as I mentioned, flowing into to clean energy every year. There's more capital out there from Wall Street and other um, you know, pension funds, infrastructure funds, you name it insurance companies, they now view solar and wind as safe, predictable asset classes. In fact, safer than fossil fuels. Um, insurance companies view it the same way because with, with fossil, you still always have the exploration risk. Uh, you know, is a well going to go dry? 
uh, transportation risk, you know, freezing natural gas in Texas, um, coal on trains, you name it. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of complication, whereas wind and solar, they're capital intensive to build them. And that cost is now about the same cost as building a coal nuclear, a coal or a gas plant, far less than a nuclear, nuclear plant. Um, but you have very low, almost no operating cost. I mean, you, you have some, but you have no fuel cost. Unless somehow somebody starts to put a tax on sunshine and wind, uh, there's no fuel cost. So um, anyway, to, to answer the question, sure, that, that's going to be a transition. Same thing happened when we switched from whale oil to kerosene. Same thing happened when we switched from horses, you know, horse and buggy to automobiles. Anytime an industry goes through a massive transformation like this, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be upset and fighting the change, fighting the, you know, the inertia of that. Um, but it is inevitable because the economics now uh, are so powerful that that wind and solar um, will be hands down coal, gas and nuclear anywhere. Mm. And uh, Robert, one of the things that, that we can be assured that a death threat to Troy, he's got he's got two things on his side. He's got the uh, the original uh, uh, seal, Navy seal, who who has uh, who has got his back. And, and then if he has to, he can just turn it. Uh, what is it that the uh, boring uh, machine uses in the front? Uh, plasma. Plasma. You can just turn the plasma, plasma on it uh, right, right through the phone. <laughs> well, and don't, anyway, and don't is, forget, I'm also an American Ninja Warrior. I've been invited oh, right. to be on that show four, uh, four times. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Troy, this has been wonderful. This is really wonderful to 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 uh, see and see and hear the predictions that are coming in the next in this very short three year period. We're going to be seeing some holes dug, right? We are. It's going to be so exciting. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to getting the deck from you so we can share with some of the people down here who are looking for these kind of projects to invest in. Uh, what would you like to how would you like to uh, leave our audience? Yeah, I would just want to tell your audience and your listeners uh, to have hope. You know, you hear a lot of disheartening news about climate change. and Oh, what can we possibly do as one person, you know, and. And is this is this going to get better for those who care about, you know, Mother Earth and the environment and our children and grandchildren, clean air, clean water, clean food. There's hope. Uh, we have the technology. The economics are there. And companies like mine and there's many others out there that are coming up with clever technologies that are going to enable a more rapid transformation to a cleaner, safer, healthier world. And, and, and a strong amount, a uh, large number of very good jobs. Absolutely. It's going to stimulate the economy in a, in a huge way. I mean, and we won't have to rely on imported energy uh, anymore. And we'll, we'll have homegrown energy and, and a huge number of jobs taking care of these solar and wind projects and new transmission uh, all, over, uh, yeah, all over the country. Excellent. Well, Robert, why don't you close this out for today? Well, once again, I'm going to call on Bucky Fuller. Uh, my friend, uh, longtime friend, the late John Denver, quoted Bucky quite often. He said that part of his purpose in life was to contribute toward a you and me world instead of a you or me world. Uh, we're living in a culture right now that's going through wrenching change around uh, opposing camps. 
and uh, it's like the opposite of you and me. This the way uh, that I experience you, Troy, is that you're very you're not like uh, some philosopher. I mean, you know your business, and and it's a business that involves dirt and digging and and uh, a, a lot of investment. You know, it's not airy fairy, uh, and it's not software. It is it's real work. And it's in those areas, it seems to me, that you or me tends to predominate in terms of a, a consciousness around the business world, around the media, around politics. Uh, I just see tremendous win-win-win possibilities for what you're doing. Uh, I admire it. I, I have some sense based on my life experience of how challenging it must be sometimes. It's just an absolute delight to uh, be in this conversation with you, and applaud you, encourage you, and uh, uh, and to learn about something that's new and exciting and has such potential for the human family. Thank you, Robert. And we, we we may have to change uh, the name of our podcast sometime uh, from the not-so-famous to the soon-to-be-famous. <laughs> <laughs> well, Very good. We'll see about that. <laughs> Thanks, Troy. I look Thank forward you, to our next conversation. Take care. All the best. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you heard it. Some more conversations with some not-so-famous achievers, at least not yet, right here on Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net, streaming live from University of California Irvine's Beal Applied Innovation Center.